Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you. Steve is away for much-needed little spiritual break. He and Elena are in New Hampshire. So that's uh, out of the beaten path. Trees and hopefully changing of colors. So we'll, we'll hold down the fort. But you all get a giant gold star tonight. We are finishing what at least should be a contender of the hardest part of the Bible. I certainly would put it up there against Revelation or maybe Daniel as just heavy, constantly, over and over, how upset God was. And so tonight we, we end that section. It's going to be a hard ending, but it's still the end of the section. So our kid that we have followed through rehab is finally going to graduate tonight. And that graduation has instilled in it, hopefully, the idea that they will never go back. That what has happened in the past will be left in the past. But we'll see how it goes. As with all of this, it is hard stuff. And the, the rabbis, the sages that I read so much uh, attached a warning. I think we talked about it when we started Ezekiel that they said, you know, it's probably not a good idea for us to let the average person read Ezekiel. <laughs> um, we should put an age restriction on it because it's, it's so hard, it's so difficult. But it is, in a hard way, the strong love of God that he will love us through even a nightmare. And that's what this has sort of felt like. But there's a reference to tonight's section that you've heard thousands of times in church. And I want to share it with you tonight because now you can actually say, quote, you've had the meat. So in Hebrews chapter 5, you've heard this so many times, I know. Uh, it's sometimes debated who wrote Hebrews. I definitely think it's Paul because his wonderful acerbic nature comes through. Uh, Paul was a jerk. And you always can tell Paul was a jerk. <laughs> Because he likes to tell people they're stupid. So, I'm not kidding, it's Paul. So, tell me if this doesn't sound like him. We'll pick up in chapter 5, verse 11 of Hebrews. So, chapter 5, verse 11 of Hebrews. There is much more we would like to say about this, but you don't seem to listen. So, it's hard to make you understand. You have been Christians for a long time now, and you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again. The basics a beginner must learn about Scripture. See what I mean? Warm, fuzzy, kind guy. You are like babies who drink milk and cannot eat solid food. And a person who is living on milk isn't very far along in their Christian life and doesn't know much about doing what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature and have trained themselves to recognize the difference between right and wrong and then do what is right, which is one of the places I get it. That's God's main point for us, to learn to choose. No other creature, no other being God has ever made has been given the image of God to choose between right and wrong and then act upon it. But Paul's real focus here, learn to eat meat. 
In many ways, the reference to meat is what we're talking about tonight, way back in Ezekiel 24, because we're having meat. A big pot of meat is going to be prepared for us. So let's have a quick word and we'll joyfully end chapter 24. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the faithfulness, the desire for maturity, the faith that you have in us that you would share these hard words. We know we are far from perfect as individuals, as a people, as a whole race. And yet your love doesn't end. Even when we have made a total mess of things, you find a way to clean it up and start over. We know everyone in this room has been able to start over with you. And today we strive to live a better life. May we, at the end of tonight, know the difference between right and wrong and choose to do it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 1. On January 15th, during the ninth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, this message came to me from the Lord. So... I really like, we're in uh, NIV there, I really like New Living, putting on January 15th. It sort of puts it in a little clearer perspective as opposed to, well, she just changed it over for us, thank you. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, th those dates and cubits and on the fifth year or the fourth month, yeah, just January 15th works great. But they're doing an interesting dating tool here. Um, it's not during the reign of King Zedekiah, who is the last king. It's the reign of Jehoiachin being held as a prisoner, as a pet, as a laughingstock in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. So this has been going on nearly a decade. And this, as the movie says, is the end. For all the preparation, all the warning, all the signs God has given, this is the beginning of the final siege and the end of Jerusalem. She will not return until uh, about 80 years after this. So this is the final, final stretch. This day, by the way, lives on in Scripture it's mentioned four times by the other prophets, January 15th. It's like everyone really knows that this was it. Uh, just to give you a, a feel of it, 2 Kings talks about this date. I think we have that scripture. So on January 15th, during the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon led his entire army against Jerusalem. They surrounded the city and built a siege ramp against its walls. This is actually the third time the Babylonians have come to take Jerusalem. They were driven off once. They did it halfway one time. And this is the third time. And you can imagine what kind of mood Nebuchadnezzar's in, right? Mad. I am not coming back to this city again. You're done. Everybody, anything, we're done. We're, we're tearing the walls down. We're taking every person out of this city or we're killing them. So it actually becomes a fast day, a morning day, which is our next scripture out of Zechariah. So this would be a little later than what we're reading tonight. Um, 
But this is what the Lord, this is another prophet, Zechariah, saying, this is what the Lord of, heaven, of heaven's army says. The traditional fast and times of mourning you have kept in early summer, midsummer, autumn, and winter are now ended. They will become festivals of joy, of celebration for the people of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. And so we're getting sort of what happens. This day becomes a day of mourning, a day of fasting. The people will never forget sort of the end of Jerusalem until in the future they change this day of mourning to a day of celebration because they have their temple back. So that's looking forward to what's to come. But it's sad. So let's go back. Verse 2 of Ezekiel 24. Son of man, Again, we know significance of right. We're, we're transitioning from this son of man that's been in rehab, has been broken, has disappointed God on every level possible. But God is showing how this man can transform right down today's date. Because on this very day, the king of Babylon is beginning his attack against Jerusalem. Then show these rebels an illustration. Literally a parable. Give them a message from the sovereign Lord. Put a pot of water on fire to boil. Fill it with choice meats, the rump and the shoulder and all the most tender cuts. Use only the best sheep from the flock and heap fuel on the fire beneath the pot. Bring the pot to a boil and cook the bones along with the meat. So stop there. We're going to have dinner. Like I said before, we're going to have meat. Now, why is meat a big deal? It's protein. Sign of wealth. And it just tastes better. Right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. If humans have their preferences, we eat meat. Present company, well, certain present uh, vegetarians notwithstanding, uh, historically people have always preferred meat. It's good. Meat was not readily accessible uh, to the average person in the ancient world. Remember, wealth is almost always determined by what you eat and what you wear. And so the wealthier people, of course, are having access to meat. Now, where has Ezekiel been all this time in Babylon? Been by river, yeah? Has he been in a palace with Nebuchadnezzar hanging out in his guest house? No. Basically, remember, he's been in a demolished city, another city the Babylonians destroyed. And so they put sort of the uneducated, the un unskilled labor of the Jews out to this old, rotten city, collapsed city, and said, do something with it, rebuild it, make more mud bricks. You started with bricks, and now you're back with bricks. So he's basically been in a refugee camp. Uh, muddy, miserable, that's all Mesopotamia is, is mud. Two rivers and a lot of mud. Everything's built out of mud. And so he's been in this miserable place. And so God is going to make this very pronounced scene. If you haven't had meat in a long time, how does it smell? Oh, Divine. So we don't know where he finds this flock, uh, finds these sheep. Um, 
I hope they were lambs, but they're probably sheep. But anyway, to, to cut them up and to begin to cook them would have gotten everybody's attention in an instant. And it plays off a theme that we know well. What is God's dream in Scripture? His desire, his want. From Genesis all the way through prophets, through the last section of Revelation, what's God always after? Yeah. Yeah, to be with his people, um, to, to walk in the cool of the evening in the garden. Emmanuel, God with us. The end of Revelation and the place of man has now become the place of God. It's this desire. And so built into all this, right, Jesus loves to talk about the great banquet. What do we do at the great banquet? We feast. It's heaven. We prepare this great meal. So they're sort of playing off of this. You've been in this miserable camp. It's muddy. It's horrible. You're probably living off moldy bread. And so now, now we have this pot. We find out in a minute, it's not just any pot. It's a huge cauldron. And so we found some of these archaeologically. They're almost like what you saw the witches do when you were kids, right? The big cast iron. This is copper, but it's a big, big uh, cast iron, uh, well, the copper pot. And we're going to, how are we going to cook the meat? Boil it. Now, has anybody ever had mutton? Yeah, it's a little, that's not good. Part of it is you have to boil, well, I say that. A lot of people do boil mutton because it's tough and you've got you to be able to chew it down. But if you were going to have a big party with lots of meat, would you boil it? Why, why don't we boil meat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's perfect. Yeah, it takes too long. It's, it, my wife has one of those, what is that? I want to say pressure cookers. Is that right? She put a chicken in there and it's like the chicken disintegrated. I mean, it, it did what it needed to, but it was oily and nasty in parts. And it was like, oh. So biblically, God never commands the boiling of meat. What does he prefer when... Grill it. See, God is a Texan. He really is. He knows if you're going to cook some meat for me, just put it out on the barbecue. Don't, don't boil it. So almost from the get-go, something is wrong here. On the one hand, we're going to have this incredible pile of meat that's going to get everybody's attention. It's going to get our, our senses, our flavors. We're going to be excited about this. But even for them, boiling is very, very strange. So just enticing us a little bit. Verse six. Now, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Destruction is certain for Jerusalem, the city of murderers. She is a pot filled with corruption. Which, did you have a different translation? She is a pot with corruption. So it's a play on words. It can be rust and it can be blood, old blood. So we're getting this image and we'll have it confirmed for us that God wants him to cook, not in this brand new, he just bought it at the store copper pot. But again, with keeping where he is in a refugee camp, there's an old thrown away, rusted out pot. 
that he wants it to cook it in. And so very quickly, you're getting the transformation of this beautiful, we're going to have meat tonight, to this is not good. We're boiling it, and we're boiling it in a dirty pot. Exactly. So um, despite all that your grandparents learned about uh, having metals in their canned goods, you remember in our grandparents, man, they, they were a tough bunch um, with all the metal and stuff they had in canned goods, and they just ate it. Today, we were like, what? But anyway, rust does not make the food taste better. You can, you can write that down in your Bible. <laughs> but beyond the nastiness of the pot, think of this corruption theme that God has laid out for us. What has been the blood in Jerusalem? Yeah. He's, he sort of laid it out. You're murderers. You've, you've killed those babies, and I've never forgiven you for that. You have, remember he said, what, two weeks ago, you had their blood on your hands, and you came in to see me. You came in my temple with dead baby blood. I, you're, you're nuts if you think that's ever going to be fine. There's also the sense that they've turned on each other. They're exploiting each other. They murder each other. They rob each other. The kings that are supposed to provide strong leadership now are really just preying on the people, trying to take their money to bribe either the Egyptians, and at one point they try the Babylonians to get them to go away. So it's just a desperate, bad, bad situation. And you sort of have that, that theme going through here. He's saying uh, the pot is filled with rust blood. And yeah, you're having the kind of reaction that God intended. For them particular, what should be done with the sheep? They can't just cut it. What do they have to do? Right. There can be no blood in the animal. So we get a lot of our flavor, right, um, in the blood. We, we enjoy the blood. But one of the teachings God had, and this is all sort of meshed here, is that when you get to enjoy me, I want you to know that it is something special and that ultimately life belongs to who? Who is the, the owner of all said life? God. And you cannot take a life from a sheep from a cow, from a child, from an enemy, from anybody without God's permission or say so. And so we have a big pot here of people that have taken what was supposed to be a feast with God and they've corrupted it. They've done, in a sense, evil, brought this blood into it that was never theirs to take it. So again, almost view this as a dream. You, you were looking at this, and it was beautiful. It was alluring. You wanted it. And then now it's turned into something just vile. In a filthy cooking pot, we're cooking blood. And I think part of the boil is that, again, if you've ever cooked meat, you realize just what a hot mess it is, right? It's bubbling, the fat, it's, just, it's disgusting. And so our great meal, Feast with God, has turned into something that is only fit to be thrown out. So we continue on. So take out the meat chunk by chunk in whatever order it comes. For her wickedness is evident to all. 
referring to Jerusalem. She murders boldly, leaving blood on the rocks for all to see. She doesn't even try to cover it up. So I will splash her blood on the rocks as an open expression of my anger and vengeance against her. A little bit of visceralness here. Again, that rusty pot, the blood that wasn't taken out, it's all boiling in this filthy broth. Part of the law that we tend to overlook is that what should be done with spilt blood. So just to take us back to Leviticus, does anybody know if, yeah, if there's ever any blood that's spilled by a person or when you're killing an animal, um, I think we have it Leviticus 17. So if any native Israelite or foreigner, so these are somewhat rare commands that God wants everybody to follow. Foreigner living among you goes hunting and kills an animal or bird that is approved for eating. You must drain its blood and cover it with earth. So God wants us always to treat blood. And it's funny that we Christians tend to miss this. I don't know. I, I always have this debate. It's fun with sixth graders when I take them through confirmation. Where is your soul? And of course, man, they come up with everything. It's in my heart. It's in my head. It's a, it's a ghostly form. I mean, biblically, it's very clear where your soul is. It's attached to your blood. It has always been. That, that's the consistent message. When we talk about the blood of Christ, it's a Hebrew way of saying it's the soul of Christ. It's interchangeable. So this built-in image, every time you see blood that has been shed on the earth, like Cain and Abel, you honor it in a sense by returning it. You, you cover it up. You don't allow it to sort of rot. That is a life that is important and you treat it with dignity. So how much more extreme now that we've had a city that's been covered in innocent blood and the blood of children and the blood of those exploited by people in a time of siege. So this is horrible. Verse 9, this is what the sovereign Lord says back in Ezekiel. Verse 9, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Destruction is certain for Jerusalem, the city of murderers. I myself will pile up the fuel beneath her. Yes, heap on the wood. Let the fire roar to make the pot boil. Cook the meat well with many spices. Then empty the pot and burn the bones. So what are we doing with this giant slop? We get it hotter and hotter. What are we trying to do? Burn it up, destroy it. And then, this is how most of my cooking ends. Uh, then empty the pot, <laughs> just pour it out. This is the first 24 chapters of what we've been studying in Ezekiel. All of the heartache, the pain, suffering through addiction, the desire to return back to the addiction, the hard things we had to say, the painful things that we've done to each other, all of that is coming to a head now in this big pot that is the fall of Jerusalem. And I don't want God saying, I don't want any of it. You don't want any of it. So let's make an end of it. Let's burn up this pot. And whatever is in it, just pour it out. Throw it away. Let it, let it be done. Let it go away. 
so we even burn the bones. We are completely uh, spoiled when it comes to eating meat, right? How many of you still eat the marrow? Did your great-grandparents? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, there was a time where we didn't waste it. That was precious. Uh, so even, you know, biblically, uh, God, I didn't even want the marrow. That's how far the corruption has gone for my people. The, the blood, the evil has infected all. So burn up, burn up the bones. Verse 11, now set the empty pot on the coals to scorch away the filth and corruption. So it's so bad, God's going to scour the pot to get rid of everything that was in it. And again, imagine boiling bloody lamb and what a mess that that's caused in the, the pot. And what does he say in verse 12? It's hopeless. The corruption remains. So throw it into the fire. It is the filth and corruption of your lewdness and idolatry. So the lewdness is the most intense sexual sin. It usually covers uh, ritual prostitution and incest. Uh, and then you know idolatry. We've talked about that a lot. So he's so upset at what's happened before that he doesn't even want to keep the pot that you cooked it in. He wants to melt down the pot to have everything that's happened before removed. So again, think about it. Your child has been in a uh, six weeks uh, rehab program. You've gotten him out. Um, this has been years of you trying to get him sober. Do you want a t-shirt from that rehab place? <laughs> Um, are you going to go next year and celebrate Christmas there? No. This was the worst part of our life. Let's just end it. Let, let's not go back. Um, let us, in a sense, burn the pictures. Um, let's, let's look forward to what's going to come. So after we've talked about uh, trying to burn the pot... Um, and now because I've tried to cleanse you, but you refused, you remain filthy until my fury against you has been satisfied. I, the Lord, have spoken. The time has come and I won't hold back. I will not change my mind. You will be judged on the basis of all your wicked actions, says the sovereign Lord. And this almost like a play is the end of Jerusalem. We don't have here in Ezekiel. Actually, we don't really in any section of the Bible, get a blow-by-blow blow of the last desperate fight for Jerusalem. Uh, it was bad. Um, I can tell you archaeologically it was bad. We find piles of bones uh, where the people were just slaughtered in masses. Uh, these are the ones that the Babylonians saw no use for. Again, if you had some sort of skill, you were a blacksmith or you could read, some sort of seamstress, something like that, they would take you as a slave. But if you were an average person, they didn't want to feed you. You're not particularly helpful as a slave, so they would do away with you. Remember Ezekiel's, we'll, we'll talk about this coming up, but uh, the Valley of Dry Bones, that's not a metaphor. <laughs> that's not a parable. We have a lot of parables, but that's really what he sees leaving his home, leaving these valleys, and the Babylonians have piled up dead bodies. 
So this was, this was horrendous. This was God burning up the meal, burning up the pot, smashing the pot. Um, everything is ended. What do you think God's reaction at this point is? I mean, he, he's had his fury. Is he happy? Is he sad? Is he worn out? What is he? Who, who are these people? His people? And what has he used as his metaphor? I mean, they're more than his children. They're his what? His wife. That's what he keeps calling them. You are my precious daughter. Remember? That I raised and I married. When I made covenant, literally when I married you, I raised you up. And so he does not rejoice in any of this. There's one final step that he has to take, and this is a heart wrencher, and it's going to hurt. It's supposed to hurt. But God has lost, in a sense, his wife. And so he grieves for that. But what he doesn't want is that old wife to come back. He wants the woman he married to come back. And I'm probably speaking out of turn here because it, I haven't been through this, but being around a lot of addicts and, and trying to help them, but there's a tricky difference there, right? Because the person you hate and the person you love are all wrapped up in the same skin. But what makes the difference between the addict and the person you love? What actually determines the difference? Yeah, their actions, that thing Paul told us about, their choices. So he does not want to go back to the way things were. So it gets very personal, verse 15. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, I'm going to take away your dearest treasure. Who do you suppose his dearest treasure is? His wife. We're going to have one final lesson, the worst of them. Suddenly, she will die. Yet, you must not show any sorrow. Do not weep. Let there be no tears. You may sigh, but only quietly. Let there be no wailing at her grave. Do not uncover your head or take off your sandals. Do not perform the ritual of mourning or accept any food brought to you by consoling friends. What? This is horrendous, isn't it? Cruel, mean. So his wife is going to die. She dies suddenly. We don't know of what. I think she was going to die anyway. And God is using this as a illustration for him. But this is sort of the depths of where we've come. Why? And this is the whole point of this text. The whole point of everything. Well, in fact, I should just read that. Um, let me do verse 18. So I proclaimed this to the people the next morning. And in the evening, my wife died. The next morning, I did everything I had been told. And the people asked me, what does this all mean? What are you trying to tell us? 
So what does this all mean? Maybe we have misjudged this God completely. He has just killed, it seems, Ezekiel's wife. Ezekiel has done nothing. Why can't he mourn her? Now you know scripture has uh, the saying, it'll make your ears ring. Um, That is such a hard thing that you go through, you do not forget it. The wife's death represents what's come before, represents the addict wife. God does not want you to mourn the addict wife at all. This is sort of like Lot's children and wife leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. The one command from the angel was, do not look back. You are never going to get better. You are never going to overcome your challenges, your addictions, your problems, if you wallow in them. If you continue to run back to them. If, with the benefit of your own imagination, you make them not as bad as I I thought they were. It's really okay. God is desperate, excuse me, to draw a line and say... We were at this point, and remember, I burned up the meal, I burned the pot, I threw everything away. Now we're going to go forward. There is a going forward for Ezekiel and the people, but it is not to live in forever sorrow of what was lost in Jerusalem. This really isn't about the wife. This is about what's happened in Jerusalem. God cannot rebuild something if your heart is still with what you've lost. Because what you lost was killing you. What you lost was the greatest perversion of humanity, I think, possible. That we were killing each other, killing babies, in order to have successful lives. There is no part of that that God wants returned. And so, when news that's going to arrive, and we'll read it in a few minutes, that Jerusalem has fallen... People are now faced with this raw, extreme example of what Ezekiel did. Because wouldn't you mourn for King Zedekiah? Remember what happens to him? We've talked about it a couple of times. Right. Yeah, his, I think, based on the other article I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, I think this is Nebuchadnezzar, pure Nebuchadnezzar. But he brings Zedekiah's sons before him, those last sons, the last line of David, and he kills them right before the king. And then he gouges out the king's eyes. So the last thing you saw was the death of your family. And then you can come live in my palace with a chain around your neck, and you'll be some glorified ape that I periodically feed and make fun of to the impressment of my entire court. Your future is great. There's... A certain sympathy, I think, we would have for Zedekiah. There's a certain nostalgia. Oh, man, if we could just go back, if we could maybe just start a revolution movement and go back. And God's like, you're not, there's nothing. Once you've gotten off the heroin, I don't ever want you to go back to those neighborhoods. I don't ever want you to hang out with the people that you did before. I don't want you to go to the clubs that you did before. I don't want you to read the books. I don't want you to wear the clothes. I don't want you to do anything that you did before that led to what you were, period. 
So don't mourn for it. Don't long for it. And as hard as this is, I think Ezekiel gets it. Verse 20, so I said to them, a message came to me from the Lord, and I was told to give this message to the people of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will desecrate my temple, the source of your security and pride. Your sons and daughters in Judah will be slaughtered by the sword. Then they will do as Ezekiel has done. You will not mourn in public or console yourself by eating the food brought to you in sympathy. Your heads must remain covered, which, well, and your sandals will not be uh, taken off. You will not mourn or weep, and you, and you will waste away because of your sin. You will mourn privately for all the evil you have done. Ezekiel is an example for you to follow. You will do as he has done. And when the time comes, and you will know that I am the Lord. Now, is he saying, God saying to do this with all funerals? No. It's perfectly permissible to mourn, to cry, to accept food. And it's interesting how far back they were doing this, right? Um, let's take a casserole over. It's always been the answer to death um, in the known world, right? Um, so bring, bring a banana bread over. It always helps. But that's perfectly fine. This is one extreme situation where God is trying to desperately cut the ties between what happened in the past and what happens in the future, or at least going forward. But why would they uncover their heads to mourn? Now, this is kind of insider, but what do Jews normally do? Usually cover their heads. So they would uncover their heads to put ash in their hair. Um, it's a sign of mourning. Incidentally, this is why it gets really, really confusing for the church in Corinth, because they have Jews, they have Romans, and they have Greeks. And everybody does something different with their hair, with their, their covering. So when they come to worship, uh, Jews will cover their heads, right? Um, Romans will cover their heads if they're leading. So if they're leading a prayer or leading a song, they have scarves and they put them on their heads as well. The Greeks don't cover their heads for nobody, no how. I mean, getting the Greeks to wear clothes is actually the trick, right? So you got, you know, naked boy over here. You got, I put him on and off, and the Jew that doesn't want to take his off. So some of the strange things that Paul says in Corinth about uh, cover your head, don't cover your head, it's these kind of arguments that they're getting into. Three different cultures, three different ways. But here... God doesn't want the, the typical signs of mourning, ripping your clothes, covering yourself with ashes, taking off your shoes. Again, this is a, a recognition that you're in a hard place, a difficult place, maybe a little bit of holy place. Uh, none of that. Um, cut, cut your cords. We're, we're not, we're not going to go forward with this. All right, so let me stop for a minute. I have just run over something really, really huge and momentous. What do you think? How do you feel? Poor old woman's not even given a name. Yeah. 
Is it right for God to do this? Can he do this? Mm. There is that at the end of the day. The way it's worded in Hebrew, it doesn't say the, the, the pronoun killed. I mean, it doesn't say God killed her. It says that she died um, suddenly. Um, again, and the way a Hebrew is going to word that, they're going to put God in the front, but uh, won't get into all the grammar. I, I think she died, and this became a tool for God to use to teach the people and teach Ezekiel. It obviously hurt Ezekiel to not be able to warn, warn, mourn her. Um, what, what was she called? You remember? She wasn't given a name, but she was described as Ezekiel's dearest treasure. So you can imagine if all the stuff that he had seen going through the hard places being hauled off into captivity, being in the camp, she being the source of some normalcy, some life, some love. And to lose her at the end of this is incredibly painful. But that's the point, right? That's what God was saying in all, all of this as well. You think I do this and I am not affected? You think I just destroyed my temple? and my people, and it doesn't hurt me beyond words, do you think my dearest treasure hasn't died today? And the sad thing is, is God done making his sacrifices? Because what will be the next dearest treasure he has to sacrifice? Right. So, yes, sometimes we read this on the surface and we get angry and sanctimonious and this is shocking. It's supposed to be because God is trying to get through our, our haze, our, our parochialism, our just frustrating desire to go back to that which harms us. And he's trying to say, don't ever do this again. Jesus, who I don't think we give enough credit for his colorful language, has a great uh, phrase, uh, probably... Picked it up from others, but I'll give Jesus credit. Um, a dog returns to its vomit. I think that should be one of Jesus' top great quotes, right? <laughs> but for a Hebrew that hated dogs and thought dogs were God's gift for eating rotten things, they were the original inhabitants of garbage dumps. That's what Jews think dogs were biblically. So for a dog to have something that would make its stomach sick that it didn't want to eat had to be something incredibly bad in their thinking, right? So after the dog has been freed of that, it thinks for a few minutes and it goes back and says, well, maybe there's something edible in there after all. So, right, the dog returns to its vomit. Uh, this is our loving father saying, I know you people, I know you. We have just been through this thing that has broken my heart in two. I don't ever want you to go back to it. So we're not gonna mourn it, we're not gonna cry over it, we're gonna burn it, and we're gonna walk into the future. I promise you, and I got a lot to deliver now, when we get into the, the messianic kingdom, the new temple, 
the new place that God will come to reside with us, and basically the coming of Jesus, it, all of that he's been storing up, been waiting, been trying to, to do for us. I mean, literally, it's not literally, but it's, it's the, the image of a palace, a mansion, the cars, the food, the, the entertainment, the things we can do with God. But he never could do that with a heroin-addicted child. I mean, what happens when you bring your child addicted to heroin into a new house and say, it's all yours. Have fun. Knock yourself out. I love you. I want to bless you. It just becomes a giant like pot cesspool. It's horrendous. So he had to deconstruct before he could create again. Thoughts, comments, worries? You've eaten the meat. This isn't the milk. God is active in our history. He will intervene when it gets particularly nasty. And when it is nasty, he ends it. And you're either on the side that's fighting the nasty or you're in the middle of the nasty and you tend to be burned up like the pot. Let's finish up. Um, verse 25. Then the Lord said to me, Son of man, on that day I will take away their stronghold, their joy and their glory, their heart's desire, their dearest treasure. I will also take away their sons and daughters. And on that day, well, let me try to explain some of that. So the most precious dearest treasures that they had in their old sinful life, God is trying to rip and destroy all that away. When you say in Hebrew, I take away your sons and daughters, it means you have no future. As crazy as it sounds, and we can talk about this in depth, the Jews really, well, I shouldn't say Jews, the Israelites at this point really don't believe in an afterlife. I know that shocks everybody to death, but the development of heaven is a very slow one in the Bible. And it's really towards the very end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, before they get this sense of there is more to this life. What they generally believed is you went to Sheol, which is a big pit in the ground. And that was that. Now, this is shocking because all their neighbors tend to believe in all sorts of afterlifes, Egyptians and everybody else, very complicated afterlives. Not really the Jews. Just give us the promised land. That's it. Okay. Now, God has more in store for them than that, but they really are not that interested. Their sense of immortality is their kids, right? What did Abraham want above anything? He didn't say, I want to go to heaven. He didn't say, I want to live forever. I want to live in a paradise where nothing ever bad ever happens. I think that would have been easier for God. Like, okay, you want a son. So in Hebrew, they have this phrase, and I am returned unto my forefathers. And early Christians used to read that thing. Oh, well, you see, they really did know have a heaven because they're returning to their forefathers. Actually, what they meant is when you get buried, they put you in a rock slab and your body rots into bones. And then when the next person dies, they scoop up the bones and they pitch you in the back of the cave and you are united with your forefathers because they're all back there in the cave too. So Hebrews are not very spiritual, a lot of times very ethereal. They have a very literal sense. You're pitched back in the garbage pit with the rest of them. So gathered unto my forefathers. So 
when they say no sons and daughters, is you, you've got no future. Uh, it's over. It's, it's ended. Um, now, obviously, they are going to have a son um, and a daughter of what's coming, um, chapter 25, almost immediately. But um, the old has to die. The old has to go away. And again, a lot of this we hear in the New Testament when we become Christians, right? Our old self dies. I've got to die to cry, die in sin, all this casting off the old. This is the root of it. This is the original meat, if you will, of let's give up the darkness that's within us and choose something else. Because when Sodom was burned up, we don't want to look back. So 26, and on that day, a refugee from Jerusalem will come to you in Babylon and tell you what happened. And when he arrives, your voice will suddenly return so you can talk to him. And you will be a symbol of these people. They will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel's message will completely change when that messenger comes from Babylon. It's not going to be this hard, unbelievable gloom and doom we're not going to be in the heroin analogy anymore. This, in a sense, is over. It's not that Ezekiel had not been able to communicate, but what he was communicating was being focused by God to this destruction of the sinful life. There's one thing that I'll just share, sort of the depths of this. I've told you... Many times, hopefully it's, it's instilled in your brain, this phrase, son of man. We are reading it here in Ezekiel in Hebrew. So it's bene hadam. So it's the sons, or sometimes it's singular ben hadam, uh, son of Adam. And that's being transformed into um, son of man that we'll see being Jesus Christ. But when that prophecy was originally given in Daniel, which is shortly before this, it was in Aramaic. That's how it was written. Daniel is raised in the Babylonian, blah, in the Babylonian court, right? And so he's taught in the ways of the Babylonians. The Jews are learning to speak Aramaic, which is the language of Nebuchadnezzar. They're losing Hebrew. So in that section in Daniel, it was written in Aramaic. So they didn't actually say in the vision, I saw Bene Hadam. What they said is I saw Bar Enosh. Now this is really important for us. There are similarities a lot between Aramaic and Hebrew, but instead of saying that we are the sons of Adam, in Aramaic they said we are the sons of Enosh. Do you remember who Enosh was? Just talked about him. Who's Enosh? He's Adam and Eve's first grandson. He is the first son born of Set, who is the third son of Adam and Eve. His name meant the weak ones. And so we talked about it in church, and I should have brought it up at the time, but it almost became a replacement name for humanity. Instead of being the Adams, we became the Enosh. And so Aramaic sort of has picked up on that. Hebrew, because they still have the connection to Genesis, they'll hold to Adam. 
But originally, it was the prophecy was given that we were the son of the weak, the, the, the weak race, the weak ones. And I still think there's so much wisdom in that. Um, humanity, we're still the Enosh. We're, we're just left to our own devices. We'll, we'll make a terrible, terrible mess that we can't get ourselves out of. And even trying to get ourselves out of it, we make it worse. So much of what God is trying to do is bring us back to be Adams, to be uh, sons and daughters of God again, to be like the Son of Man, to be like Christ. So in a crazy world we have today, I think we overvalue what it is to be human and we undervalue what it is to be God. And it was almost the other way, biblically. You know, you, we were seen as the weak ones and God is the great one. So we, we need to get back to that. But there we are. Chapter 24, it's done. You've climbed Mount Everest. <laughs> yes, so good job. Any other questions? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's a. I gotta think about that for a minute. Um, so about 1200 BC, at the time of Joshua, um, give or take a decade or two, um, to 587. So, what is that? Somebody do the math. 700 years. Yeah. So they had plenty of time <laughs> to uh, to make it good, make it bad, and. Yeah. I think all that was burned down when the temple went. I mean, all that David and Solomon had done, the things that Moses had put in there, all of the, I mean, just this, it's all gone. The scriptures, the stories, you know, they're obviously preserved. Uh, but the, the physical, like, I don't ever think we'll find the Ark of the Covenant. I, I think it was part of this that was destroyed. There, there's strong rabbinical evidence that they were keeping a secret uh, that it was not there when they come back, that it was empty inside. And so they'll, they'll talk to each other about, you know, in the Holy of Holies, we are empty. Uh, when the Romans actually raid it again later on, they strip everything they can get out of it, and there's no ark. So, you know, some people say, well, they, they hit it again. Uh, I, I think it's done, it's gone. Um, all of the, the commandments, the, the rod, the manna, ugh, it just breaks your heart. But I could be wrong. The place that's described um, the last time, you guys know where they say the ark is? It's in heaven. <laughs> so it's actually described as heaven. So I don't know if God came back and got it. And it's like, I'm not letting you all play with this. But short of that, I don't think we're going to see it again. Which... It's sad, but rather have Jesus than the ark, so. <laughs> I wish. Everybody their mother finds it. The Ethiopians say they have it. And they won't let anybody see it. You know, there was a rabbi for a while that was going to blow up the Temple Mount because he knew where it was in a cave. He was crazy. Um, right, right. Yeah. So they, they think they're going to find it. And, you know, if they do, then we better pay attention. But I don't think they're going to find it.
Part of me wonders about even doing archaeology from that phase, as strong as God was saying, just leave it here. One of the things, if we ever get to go, if Israel ever opens up again, I'll take you to Hinnom Valley, where they burn the babies. And we'll, we'll just spend a little time down there. And it is awful. Awful, awful, awful. Um, uh, a lot of that needs to stay buried. Um, and just, just let, it, let it end. But it didn't stay buried, did it? It's, it's come out into our world, and it's all around. And so... We need to remember these stories. Anyway, any other questions? Good question, by the way. Yes, sir. Hey, uh, you, I was going to ask you, you were saying the Romans, uh, I wonder what, you, you were saying the Romans were looking around, looking forward to, I wonder what they wanted. Well, they also later on, after Jesus, will sack the temple. Uh-huh. And so they have pictures that they made for us of all the things they took out of the temple. And there's a lot of golden objects, a lot of censers, a lot of things they used for the worship uh, that had been rebuilt. But the one thing that we would think they would have at the center of honor is the ark, and they don't. They do have the menorah, the giant golden uh, lamp, but they didn't get the ark. So either it wasn't there or... Yeah. No, I did, yeah. Yeah, so that's about a thousand AD. So we're we, that's a lot, a lot of more history, but yeah, yeah. It's amazing in terms of archaeology in underwater and what's happening. I, I'm too scared. Every time I go over to the Middle East, I'm not getting, I'm not getting on a boat. <laughs> I'm not getting in the water. It's yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, no, it's, it's every day they're finding stuff over there. It's, it seems to go faster and faster, too. So. Uh, not, not that I know biblically. Um, other than, you know, Christians controlled um, Israel and Jerusalem for, what, about three centuries ourselves. Everybody tends to forget that. So, but not anymore. Goes to museums, mostly, or gets sold. So, anyway, let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for the place that we've walked with you. We know it is not often that a parent can have such a hard conversation with their kids, but we know it is a path to maturity. We know we know that you do not allow us to hear these words in vain. This is not just a Bible study. This is not just something to entertain us on Wednesday night. These are sacred words that broke your heart to have to share. But you share them with us for a reason tonight. Father God, we are desperate for history not to repeat itself. If you were willing to burn down your own temple to stop your people from sinning, then we need to hear that as a warning. For as much as you loved your chosen people, We know you love us tonight, that America has been your city on a hill, shining light for all the world to show them what liberty, freedom, and prosperity can look like. Yet in all this, O Lord, we sense the same kind of rot. 
but there is blood shattered over our own land as well. And we descend into idolatry and to whatever sin strikes our fancy. Help us, O Lord, to stop it now before it metastasizes and there is nothing left. May we be the solution with your help before you have to destroy it and start over. We know we have the power and the example of Christ. We know that we can say to people, you are the son of man. You are the son of Adam, loved by God. You're not a collection of your impulses and your desires. You're not a, an addiction. You're a chosen loved one by God. So help us, O oh Lord, to begin to live that way, to begin to purify so that we can know true love that comes only from you. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, sir. Try both.